Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Good morning. It's 830 on Monday, September 11th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, federal engineers are studying ways to mitigate flooding along the lower Pearl River in Jackson, but progress is delayed. Then the legislature is trying to better understand how broadband access can be expanded to every home and business. And many families in Mississippi are unable to afford diapers and other essentials for their babies. More on that ahead. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Analysis of possible flood management solutions along the stretch of the Pearl River running through Jackson is delayed another month. Many homes in East Jackson are at high risk for flooding when there's a lot of rainfall. The most recent flooding just over a year ago where hundreds of homes were inundated with toxic storm water. A major proposal titled the One Lake Project has been heralded as a possible solution to the city's flooding. But opponents of the project say it would hurt the Pearl River's ecosystem and the primary economic benefactor would be neighboring Rankin County. The Assistant Secretary of the Army for Civil Works says the agency has received numerous comments relating to proposed solutions. They're extending the study to review the submissions. Our Mike McEwen speaks with Pearl Riverkeeper Abby Brahman about the project and what further delays could mean for those who rely on the water source downstream. She says the Army Corps of Engineers sent out an email recently outlining many of the comments they've received so far. They've received numerous public comments and input over the past few months, and that although they cannot assess all the comments received, they're working to make sure that their analysis addresses some of the more frequently received comments. Um, And importantly, one of the things that they specifically mention is that they received a lot of comments about flooding issues on the tributaries in Jackson. So there's numerous, over a dozen creeks or tributaries that run through the city of Jackson. Um, And a lot of our flooding is actually occurring along those tributaries, um, whether or not the river is high or not just in flash flooding situations. So any flood control solution for Jackson should address the tributaries, um, and that is what Pearl Riverkeeper said, and a lot of um, individual citizens and then also um, other groups in Jackson mentioned to the Corps. So the Corps is looking at that closely. Um, One thing that it does say in the One Lake Environmental Impact Statement that came out in 2018 was that Um, the higher level, the water level that the lake is going to be held at because of the new low head dam, it's going to be anywhere. um, Right now it's being held at about 250 feet by the low head dam there. Um, It could be held even at 258 feet. That new pool 
of water that where the lake is that that's going to push water up the tributaries and it's actually going to increase the flood profiles of the tributaries and so i'm sure the core doesn't want the tributaries to get any worse than they are now which is um, some tributaries like um, lynch creek in particular flood sometimes multiple times a year um, into people's homes and also um, like jh hill high school for example has their parking lot flooded frequently so anything that could exacerbate that would certainly be bad and also if the core could look at clearing out those tributaries and letting those flow better, and that would help Jackson. If you had to guess, what would you say the majority of those public comments would have centered around? What's your, I guess, your read on how citizens of Jackson view the project? For citizens of Jackson, certainly the tributary issue. There's also um, the issue of the hazardous toxic waste sites that are in the project area and what will happen with those and how will it be mitigated if they have to remove those? Will there be additional air pollution or water pollution? 2018 DEIS mentioned that um, JH Fuel, the drinking water plant, would be unusable if they had to do uh, during the time of construction of the One Lake Project. (laughs) Clearly, uh, Jackson doesn't need uh, to have one of their drinking water plants unusable for several years. So comments like those, and then also comments, I know specifically that there was comments from some community organizations and neighborhood associations in Northeast Jackson that have concerns that the One Lake Project is not going to provide enough flood risk management for those communities because the 2018 um, environmental impact statement states that some of those communities will have less flooding, but they will still flood and one of the remedies the 2018 DEI has mentioned is buyouts. And I know specifically that some neighborhood associations wrote to the core saying that no one had ever come to their community and explained to them what buyouts would look like, who would be eligible, and what the dollar amounts would be. And the Pearl River, of course, runs through more than Jackson. So what are, the, what are some other communities that are, I guess, invested or keeping an eye on this project? Yes, for sure. So um, one of the communities that is heavily invested in working towards a better solution for flood control for Jackson than the One Lake Project is um, Monticello and Mayor Martha Watts. And she has concerns about, as does the um, business Georgia Pacific, about whether or not they will be able to comply with their permits if there are changes to the flow on the river. So they, um, for the permits for Georgia Pacific and for also for their business to be able to function, there needs to be a certain water level and, of course, and also a certain water temperature. And if there's less water um, coming out of the lake or perhaps overheated water because of the larger surface area of the lake that's getting beaten down by sun every day in the summertime, um, then that will have issues, and Mayor, Mayor Watts' community relies on those jobs at GP Monticello. Um, and then downstream, of course, I, I don't know if you find anyone from downstream who is interested in having the One Lake Project be built. They're very concerned about modifications that have already been done on the river, including the Ross Barnett Reservoir, which um, has changed the flows downstream and, ca- and caused a lot of other uh, banks to slop away. So property loss. And then there's businesses, of course, that rely on the Pearl River, um, including commercial and um, recreational fisheries that rely on the 
on the freshwater flow from the Pearl River. So um, that's an, another economic impact that could happen that the downstream communities are worried about. I was going to ask they, about the coastal communities because it, yeah. I know the Pearl, it dumps off into the Mississippi Sound. And, you know, I'm from Florida and we've channelized some of our rivers and have just decimated fisheries there. So I was wondering if that was something on people's minds. Oh, yes, for sure. Senator Hewitt from Louisiana, I know, sent a letter to the Corps of Engineers asking that the Corps conduct a full water assessment of the whole system. The 2018 DIS didn't cover downstream impacts. And I know um, Representative Scalise in um, the, one of the acts that went through Congress asked specifically that um, the Corps look at the downstream impacts. So you have impacts, uh, freshwater flow, which you have the estuaries on the Gulf Coast are rely on a mix of salt and freshwater. And if you don't have enough freshwater, um, then you're going to have issues with uh, some of the uh, fisheries collapsing and our estuaries having issues. And then you also have the issue of sedimentation. If you don't have enough sedimentation or the river provides a lot of silt and sand and dirt that comes down and it actually replenishes the estuaries down there. And our estuaries are also the buffers for uh, hurricane activity and help soak up a lot of water for the communities and help buffer uh, the impacts of storm surge that come in. So um, that would be an issue, of course, um, downstream also. Coming up, state leaders are trying to coordinate billions of federal dollars to help connect everyone in Mississippi to the Internet. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Fix It 101 is a fun podcast with lots of home improvement information. Even if that's not your bag, all of the episodes are archived online. So if the mood strikes you or if the need motivates you, you can search your project. And yes, there is a Fix It 101 podcast for that. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. While most homes and businesses in the state have access to the Internet, many of the download or upload speeds haven't kept up with the growing online economy, and others have no access at all. Streaming shows online, downloading large files, or video calls are often not possible on dial-up or satellite Internet, and disruptions in service are common. The broadband expansion and accessibility of Mississippi office is seeking to close that gap, and the legislature is trying to better understand the needs of that agency as they move forward on these projects. During a hearing on Friday, BEAM Director Sally Doty told lawmakers about the bottlenecks in the system and how they could be mitigated. She says Mississippi will soon receive about $1.2 billion federal dollars through the BEAT Act. That's broadband, equity, access, and deployment. We have 268,860 unserved locations in Mississippi and almost 40,000 underserved. Unserved is below 25 down, three up. That is the the definition being used for this bead funding that we have. Underserved, below 100 down, 20 up. 
it, it gets confusing talking about speeds. I'll tell you the 25.3 is kind of DSL that we all had at one time and thought was plenty fast. And at that time, it was plenty fast uh, before we started having to do a lot of remote work and had telehealth and all these different things that we could do online. That, that's where we are. Now, Mississippi has been very fortunate in the past few years, and we've gotten a lot of additional federal funding prior to this federal funding that we're going to get. Um, one of the large pots of federal funding is the Rural Digital Opportunity Fund, and it is this federal funding that really has allowed some of our electric co-ops to build out. They have used that funding. Uh, so up in the north part of the state, a lot of those co-ops really use that funding. Uh, in the south part of the state, I'm from Brookhaven down in southwest Mississippi. There's a provider there that has a very large Ardoff award that is just getting started on his on their build-out. Uh, Ardoff has certain milestones to get their projects completed. Most of them have to reach 40% completion by 2024, 60%, 25%, 80%, 26%, and then they got to be 100% built out. Mississippi had the second highest art off award in the nation, so it was really good for us. But also, what that means is if, if your address, if it has art off funding attached to it, we can't give it additional funding. So it's very important to know what locations in Mississippi already have federal funding attached, and that has been a bit difficult to nail down. There are other pots of federal, state, and local dollars being used by the office to help build out broadband access. Doty says the agency is utilizing maps, surveys of the state, and information from Internet service providers to find those locations and ensure funding is allocated properly. What we are very targeted on doing is making data-driven decisions. If somebody asks me why we gave a certain grant award out, why we did something, we're going to have the data to tell you this is exactly why we did it. Uh, We want to make sure we have the best network technology. We have our, our, our fiber bills or the optimal bills. We use our money very efficiently so we can reach everybody. We have a group that is our, our, that does some data modeling for us to help us understand how much it's going to cost to get to all these different locations. And we were looking at one particular county. There were three locations in different parts that each cost $300,000 to get to. So a million dollars to get to three locations. Like, you know, that's probably not the best use of our funding. So it is incumbent upon our office to determine What is that level? They call it an extremely high cost threshold. What is that extremely high cost threshold when we're going to say, you know, it's just too expensive to to build out to a one, perhaps one household if it costs $300,000. Maybe we could use some fixed wireless or some other type of technology to reach you. Maybe we'd subsidize your Starlink might be cheaper. You know, what is it? How are we going to move forward with these extremely high-cost locations? And we are in the midst of determining exactly where those are right now and, and what that threshold is going to be. I've got this one reporter from the New York Times that emails me every day and says, "How much, are you going to reach everybody? Are you going to reach everybody? And I'm like, yes, our intent is we're going to reach everybody. Um, but it is going to take very efficient 
use and the most optimal use of our funding and technology to reach everybody. Dodie says her team has been very successful in reaching people across the state, but they're still seeking feedback on the real-world needs of folks across Mississippi. She told lawmakers about these meetings and says there are many local groups who still need a seat at the table to discuss broadband and their communities. And that is what I need from y'all here today as well, is strategies to meet, to reach all of these covered populations and to help them with any barriers that they have to access or affordability. You know, number one, the number one barrier to access is I don't have high-speed internet, right? So deployment, I see that as my number one job is getting high-speed internet out there. But then also, you know, there are a lot of other factors and affordability, of course, is one of those. It's just too expensive. Well, we've got ACP, Um, And then also all of the grant-funded projects are required to have a low-cost option. We're going to be looking at those costs that are going to be those monthly costs that are going to be charged um, in our office as we administer grants. And we're going to try to keep them. There has to be an affordable, low-cost option. But still, affordability is is going to be an, an issue. Affordability, what other barriers are there for these specific groups? Well, Aging, and maybe I'll put myself in that own category, right? Aging, it is, you know, kind of the fear of of somebody taking cybersecurity issues or somebody taking advantage of you. You know, what are are barriers to access? Is there a credit check before you can get service? We've seen, we've done some surveys, worked with uh, uh, Mississippi State to find out what some of these obstacles and barriers to service are. Because what we need and what we want is everybody to take service. Adoption. Adoption rate is going to be huge because what you got to it's kind of a, this is really a financial case, right? We're, we're providing federal funds to build out into areas that it really hadn't made financial sense to build out into. Mississippians can visit broadbandms.com to test internet speeds and take a survey about improving access in their community. Most local libraries in the state have computers with internet access for those who don't have the resources at home to complete that survey. Coming up, many families in Mississippi can't afford diapers for their little ones, what two women are doing to help. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB. This is MPB Think Radio. Mississippi is our mission. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. The cost of diapers has grown in recent years, and many folks across the state just can't afford what is considered a basic need. According to the National Diaper Bank Network, around 31% of Mississippians are earning less than the federal poverty level. Another 25% are classified as low income. So that translates to one in three families struggling to provide clean diapers for their babies. 
Keys. We speak with Shakitria Fitzgerald and Jackie Posey, founders of Black Mustard Seed in Natchez. It's an organization seeking to help Mississippians afford diapers for babies and adults or seniors who rely on incontinence products but may struggle to be able to afford them. That's who we are. That's what we do. Although our primary focus is on period products, diaper needs for the uh, senior citizens and for the, um, the, the the babies, we also encompass you know adolescents, young adults, middle aged adults, really from zero to ninety nine plus. We do outreach events. We try to touch almost every aspect of community service here in the Adams and surrounding area community, Adams, and then the south central part of Louisiana, which is like Virginia, Florida, and then Adams, Jefferson, Cleveland County, Wilson. Um, we try to do that so because we have so many needs from, again, we say the diapers, then we have issues with water disparities, uh, just like Jacksonville. We have those issues down here as well. Um, we have issues with uh, homelessness. We have veteran issues. So we're really just trying to reach out, and although the uh, the diaper bank is an umbrella of what we do. Black mustard seed itself is just a, a pretty much a full service. We try to be a, a full service uh, community outreach um, program. How long have you been around? When did you start? We began July 2021. Prior to that, we were working together at the sheriff's office. That was our initial inception when we were employed with the sheriff's office together. Uh, since then, but Ms. Posey remained there, and once I left, we had this conversation, basically, hey, you know, it's some issues that are still unresolved with our senior population. And so our initial beginning started around 2018, Jack? Yeah. When we first discovered the need was in 2018. Okay, so you were working at the sheriff's office. Were you doing this at the sheriff's office, or you had another job and you two were friends and decided to work on this effort together? Uh, I would say yes. We I, Actually, um, initially, I was hired to do triad, which is serves the senior population. What is it about this issue makes you so passionate about this? For me, it's being a single mother, making minimal wages, having to take care of a child to make the decision do I do for my baby or do I pay bills or pay insurance? What's more important? For me, it was to take care of that child. Same thing with my mother. When she got sick and she needed adult products, I drove from Natchez to Jackson once a month to pick up a month's supply that I purchased from Sam every month. And I know how much it costs. And I understand when you're trying to make ends meet and if you had just a little help, it would make a difference. And for, well, for me, it is it's access. And I think Jackie knows for me it's always access. If there are no real channels to get you to the resource, oh, we have resources, oh, we have this, oh, we have that. Well, how do I get to your resource if I don't have a mechanism to get me there, if I don't have a way to get me there? That's, that's that's step one. Step two is, how do I rise above this? You know, for our senior citizens, that's different. But for our young mothers who are experiencing this, who's going through this, who can't go to work because they got a baby at home with no diapers. They can't, you know, they, 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 they have to call out 
oh, you've already called out, so now you don't have a job. Well, there are already low-wage jobs. They're, you know, they're, like she said, minimum-wage jobs. And they're um, robbing Peter to pay Paul. And now this, I don't have a job because I can't take kids. I can't get these diapers that I need. To, and people don't realize that's a real issue when you don't have money to buy diapers or even period products for your, for your teen that's in, that's in high school or elementary school. And so now you have to stay home with this child and um, do the best you can. So how do we get this low-wage, minimum-wage job with these issues with not being able to afford these personal hygiene products so that I can go to work, make money, and do the best that I can, and you can go to school? Well, to me, access means uh, a variable of education and understanding, and even if it's just resource, you know, referrals, um, bringing them in and speaking with them about educational opportunities. Um, have you ever had a career assessment? Because we're doing the various things in the community, but also I like to be able to offer them these opportunities to say, hey, um, I've always wanted to go to school. I've always wanted to do that. I'm, well, look, we can assist with that. I, I can't pay for you to go to school, but I can definitely walk you through this process of, you know, getting a skill set, obtaining a skill set, if, even if it's just one step above where you are. More on this issue tomorrow. That's Shakitria Fitzgerald and Jackie Posey, founders of Black Mustard Seed. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.